the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Presidential Stones in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Where did this idea of foundational documents in stones originate? This is Truth Encounter, and these are the questions we can find the answer to in the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 27. You have all heard the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. But have you heard about one of the first monuments Israel erected when they entered their homeland? Let's join Dave Wurtson, our study leader, as he introduces today's lesson by quizzing some of the children in his church about the documents and stones that are important in their history, and then relates it to the history recorded in Deuteronomy. We're going to start out with a little bit of school right now. All nations are able to underscore some of their foundational commitments and beliefs by having some sacred documents. There is a document that was written by a man named Thomas Jefferson that's one of the most famous documents in the foundation of our country. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the power of the earth the separate and equal stations to which the laws of the nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind, and so forth. And then you have the famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. So, there's our Declaration of Independence. All right, there's another document that's very important. How many of you kids have ever heard someone in a court of law, maybe even watching Perry Mason, and they, somebody is up there, they're being tried, and they suddenly make a statement, we claim the fifth. Why does someone claim the Fifth Amendment? We've got a court bailiff here. He's a bailiff. He should know what's going on. Jack, what does it mean to claim the Fifth? Okay. Do you know where that is? Okay, let me read to you. It's the Bill of Rights, Article 5. It says, why we claim the Fifth. It's the Bill of Rights. It goes like this. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in case of rising in the land or so forth and so forth, and it mentions that no one can incriminate themselves. That's why we talk about claiming the fifth. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some sacred stones, okay? Somebody would just tell me they took a trip to South Dakota. Why would you take a trip to South Dakota? And are there some very strategic stones in South Dakota? Can anybody raise their hand and tell me about some stones in South Dakota? Yes. Mount Rushmore, good, let's give him a hand, that's great. All right, go to the head of the class. All right, at Mount Rushmore, there are what? What are on Mount Rushmore? Presidents are on Mount Rushmore. Let's give him a hand again, all right. Now, for the $150,000 question, who are the four presidents on Mount Rushmore? Washington, Lincoln, that's good, that's half of them. Jefferson is another one, that's good. One more, this is the tough one. Yes. Roosevelt. Which one? Franklin Roosevelt, right? No. no. Good. All right. Let's give him a hand. That's tremendous. Okay. Why do you think those four presidents are on Mount Rushmore? Why would they be important? Well, that's something you can think about and ask your parents why the sculpture sculptured out those four presidents on Mount Rushmore. I want you to turn your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Because what we just illustrated was something really important. What I believe is that cultures and nations are built on foundational documents. 
They're built on documents like the Declaration of Independence. But I want to ask you, how many of you, without any preparation, would be ready today to take a test on the Declaration of Independence? I want to ask you to embarrass yourself, but I want to ask you, how many of you have ever read the Declaration of Independence? How many of you have ever read the Constitution of the United States? As United States citizens, these are the documents that control the way we live. For example, the Bill of Rights that I just read from is one of the most precious, liberty-giving documents that's ever been written. It was, written on the, it was based on the Virginia Bill of Rights, and it's become the ground of the, of the freest culture that's ever been created. But the truth of the matter is, most of us don't even know what the Bill of Rights are. And I don't want you to be discouraged about it. I want you to realize that it just highlights something that's very true of human beings. They tend to have sacred, important, foundational documents. But most people don't really study those documents. Most people forget what their founding fathers lived and died for. For example, in the Declaration of Independence, it closes, it closes with these words. Let me read them to you. You probably remember them when I read it. It closes like this. The very last sentence goes like this. And for the support of this declaration... And with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then John Hancock wrote this. There, he wrote in his own hand, there I guess King George will be able to read that. And then he wrote his signature, John Hancock, in big, bold letters. You don't realize, you see, what we don't realize is that most of us haven't even read the Declaration of Independence, but those that signed that Declaration of Independence, almost every one of them did lose their fortune. Almost every one of those men, when they came to the Philadelphia Convention, were wealthy, powerful, influential men. They had strategic ties with Britain. They were, their whole businesses were built upon that. And almost every one of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence lost their fortune. A whole series of them lost their lives. Many of them were martyrs. And that's the foundation of our culture. It's very important for a people. If you're a United States citizen, it's very important for you to remember those foundational ideas. Now, if that's important from a national standpoint, then how much more important it is for us from a sacred standpoint. The passage that we're going to look at today in Deuteronomy chapter 27 is a foundational document. And the Lord God of heaven, through his prophet Moses, understood this tendency for human beings to forget, to not remember their foundational commitments, their foundational beliefs. And so God wanted to ensure that his Old Testament people would read the original documents, that you wouldn't be able in the future years of Israel to open up to a book like Deuteronomy and have everybody say, I don't have any idea what's in that book. And so the Lord God, through Moses, instituted periodic reading times. He would, he would build right into the culture, right into the holidays, times where the Word of God would be read again for all the people. In fact, also they would have strategic ceremonies, big celebrations where thousands of people would gather together. And one of the things they would do in that celebration is they would all listen to the reading of the law. The ceremony we want to talk about today is called the blessing and cursing ceremony. And it was a very moving thing. You see, Moses was getting ready to die. Moses was not going to be able to go into the promised land. He delivered the second giving of the law. 
He was there at Mount Sinai at the first giving of the law. This is the man that went with God and was intimate with God. And rather than Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence, the Lord God of Heaven Himself took His finger and engraved on a stone the ten words of the Ten Commandments. And Moses was the man that actually saw that done. But then Moses guided the people through 40 years of the wilderness, uh, the temptation, the testing. And now he's got them poised on the edge of Moab, right in the plains of Moab, on the edge of the Holy Land. But Moses is not going to be able to get into the land. And so what he does is he has the people gathered together in the plains of Moab, recommit themselves to this constitution. The book of Deuteronomy and the law codes are like the constitution of ancient Israel. And like I've explained to you, our United States constitution the ideas of it, the idea of people that make a willing commitment to put themselves under a written document, a document of law, a document of order. That all flowed from this ancient Israelite tradition as exhibited in the book of Deuteronomy. So Moses had the people recommit themselves to obey this law on the plains of Moab. But then Moses knew that he would die. He knew that he wasn't going to be the one that would lead the people in. And so, under the inspiration of God, he set up a future ceremony. After the people went in over the Jordan River, after they conquered that fortress city Jericho, after the defeat of Ai, and then after they were finally able to begin to move up into the highlands, as they moved up into the mountains of Samaria, there was a place called Shechem. It was the first place that Father Abraham went when he finally got into the promised land. It was the place in Genesis chapter 12 where God promised to this great patriarch that he would give his descendants this promised land. And so God, because he's an artist that likes to bring things together, says when Joshua leads the people in, they're to go to a place called Shechem. And at Shechem, they're to do a very moving ceremony. They're to gather the people, all thousands upon thousands of people, and they're to put six tribes on the Mount Gerizim, which is to the south. They're to put the other six tribes on Mount Ebal, which is to the north. And in between are going to be the Levites, the priests, who are responsible for maintaining the commitment to the sacred document, to the sacred promise, to the sacred word that God had given through his prophet Moses. And God was going to make the people listen to this law again. And one of the moving parts of that ceremony was that the priest would lay out a blessing and the people would say, Amen, which means you can count on it. We're committed to it. And then the priest would lay out a cursing. He would lay out the fact that if you disobey, then these results are going to come. And the people would say, so be it. Amen. You can count on it. We know we can count on it. And God made the people recommit themselves to this relationship with God. In the New Testament covenant, under the relationship that we're a part of in the family of God, I think the Lord wants us to learn from this example of the past. I think one of the most important things that we need to do in our lives is to have ceremonies of remembrance. We need to have periodic times where we go back over our salvation history, like we've been talking about. We need to have some strategic times where we remember the commitments maybe that we made in our youth. Some of us might be making those commitments for the first time. But I think it's very strategic all the way through your relationship with God that you have ceremonies of recommitment, of remembering what you're building your life on. 
And that's what we want to do today. Deuteronomy chapter 27 sets before us what you might say a paradigm or a model of how God intended for his Old Testament people to keep their relationship with him warm and vital and alive. And so Moses begins the chapter, chapter 27 of Deuteronomy like this. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people. I want you to see that it's not just Moses, but it is the elders of Israel. You see, Moses is going to be gone. Moses is not going to be at the ceremony on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Moses is not going to be able to go into the promised land. He's too old, and the Lord's going to take him home to be with himself. You know, under the New Covenant, that's true as well. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find out a New Testament prophet that's concerned about the same thing that Moses was concerned about. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. You see, under the New Covenant, the man that was used by the Holy Spirit more than any other man to reveal to us the new relationship with God that we have through Christ was the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul, like Moses, knew that he wasn't going to live forever. He was just a human being in, in this physical world, that he was going to be gathered to his fathers. He would go home. And so as a great leader that was given by the Holy Spirit the great privilege of laying to us the foundation of grace in the New Covenant, like the, like the Old Testament Moses, the Apostle Paul is concerned about some people that are going to carry it on to the next generation. Look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We're going to find out that the covenant that was renewed in Deuteronomy chapter 27 is a covenant that brings a curse. You're one of you that's really a sharp student is going to read through Deuteronomy chapter 27 and is going to ask, where is the blessing? All we have in Deuteronomy chapter 27 are the cursings. Why is there no blessing? And part of the reason for that is that because of human sin, God's legal relationship with us based upon Mount Sinai, it could bring a blessing if we would obey it. But because none of us really do obey it, because every one of us, including the Old Testament Israelites and all future Israelites, everybody doesn't choose and doesn't live consistently obeying that law. And so the law always brings a curse. And that's why the Lord inspired the Apostle Paul to say words like this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a what? Tell me. It's a gift of God. Everybody tell me again. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that none of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Do you realize how incredibly, incredibly miraculous that that is, and how joyful we should be? Because God relates to us in giving us the gift of forgiveness. Because otherwise we would all face the curse. But the Apostle Paul knows that how fragile that message of grace is in a group of human beings. There's no guarantee that five years from now you're still going to be hearing for by grace are you saved through faith and that none of yourselves is the gift of God. There's no guarantee that five years from now that you'll be opening up to a book like Deuteronomy. There's no guarantee that you'll be opening this book at all. I guarantee you that there's many of you in this room that thought you were gathering together with believers. You thought you were worshiping God. You thought you were relating to Christ. You thought you were hearing His word, but you were not. You are hearing man's ideas. You are hearing challenges to be good yourself. You are hearing moral lessons and little platitudes about what it meant to be right with God. That's all over the place. There's no guarantee. In fact, to be honest with you, the, the averages against it are very strong. 
Most churches can't maintain a commitment to the good news of faith very long. Fifty years is a long time for a church to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Fifty years is a long time to believe that Jesus Christ is the only answer that can bring new life. Fifty years is a long time to believe that Jesus really did rise again from the dead. Though we can rejoice in our commitment of faith today, there's no guarantee that the next generations are going to remain committed to that. What do we need to do about it? We need to pass it along. We need to pass it on. Every one of you that are older in the faith have a responsibility to pass it on to others. Look what Paul said to Timothy. You then, my son, I want you to be strong in the grace that's in the Messiah, the Savior Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust them to reliable men. I want you to entrust them to reliable men who will be able and qualified to teach others. You see, what the Scripture says that there needs in every generation, there needs to be an older generation that knows the witness of the Scripture. That there are a group of men, especially men, especially men who take the leadership and they communicate to the next generation the things that they believe. I want to say to every one of you daddies, are you an elder? Are you an elder that's passing on the faith to your kids? Are you an elder that is the patriarch of your family? The one that guides them into the great traditions? Not tradition in the sense of religion, but the great realities of what's happened and what we believe. You see, it's very important for us to get serious about that. Bruce Wilkinson has a whole message on God has no grandchildren. And he talks about three chairs. And he sets up three chairs on a platform and he shows how you can have the first generation that really believes in the book and they're really excited about it. They're really committed to it. They believe in the message of salvation by grace. And many people are one to the Lord through their ministry, but they produce kids that just take it for granted. They were raised with it. Man, there's no big new thing with Christ dying on the cross, Christ riding again. Man, I've known it all my life. So they believe it. But they're not really vitally committed to it. They're not really alive with it. It's lost its edge. And then Bruce shows how usually by the third generation, you have another generation that forgets what the first generation believed. Now that doesn't have to happen. There's no reason biblically for that to happen because God is giving us the tools that we need to be able to pass it on. I want you to get really serious about that. Are we passing on the faith? The message, are we strong in the grace of God and are we passing that on to others? Like the Old Testament covenant, there needs to be some elders. There needs to be a whole group of men. Then there needs to be a whole group of godly women that are responsible to pass it on to the younger generation. It's one of the greatest needs of our day. And Moses realized that way back in the Old Testament. Notice what Moses then challenges them to do. He says, I want you to keep all of these commands. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 1. Keep all of these commands that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan, the land that the Lord your God has given you, set up some large stones. Coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God has given you. It's a land. It's a good land. It's a land that's flowing with milk and with honey. Just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. In other words, God keeps his promises and he's going to give us a good land. And when you have crossed the Jordan and set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I commanded you today, and coat them with plaster, build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. 
Do not use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with field stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating there and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones you have set up. Now what's being described here? It's that ceremony that I just talked about. And there's some elements that needed to be taken care of in the ceremony. First of all, we had to get some really strong guys. And these guys would gather together and they would get maybe a stone that's 8 to 10 feet high. Up in the Adirondacks where I was raised, you can go out into the woods and it's like great big ball bearings just sitting out there in the woods. A stone that might be 10 or 15 feet in diameter. In Israel, they would get these large stones and they would take, you know, maybe hundreds of guys and push them up on Mount Ebal. And then you get the artists in the group. You get the painters like Alan would have to come in. And Alan, you'd have to whitewash this whole stone. They'd take some lime and they'd mix it and they'd whitewash that whole stone. And then they would get someone that could write. Like Mary has great handwriting. They would get someone like Mary to make some black ink out of, out of some maybe some burned ivory tusk. Like they did down in Egypt. Because this whole custom is Egyptian. Which, by the way, is very important. Why do you think that Moses uses an Egyptian custom for recording their laws. Why not a Mesopotamian custom? What do you think? Why do we tend in Israel to have an Egyptian custom for preserving their law and not the Babylonian way? Because they lived there for 400 years. You see the little subtle authentication? If this was just a fabricated story written much later, the Babylonian influence later on in Israel's history was much stronger than the Egyptian influence. This is a sign that we're very early. It's Egyptian. In fact, in Egypt, we have representations of this kind of thing done. The Egyptians would paint large stones. They would write in black on it, and it was very permanent. Now, why would God have the children of Israel push these large, gigantic stones, have someone go through all the agony of printing out in hand on these stones? Why would God do that? Well, why in our own culture, why do we have the Vietnam Memorial? The Vietnam Memorial is a large stone, just a whole series of stones, and then what's on it? The names. And if you have someone that you lost, if your high school roommate died or your friend died, when you go to Washington, D.C., what do you do? Every time I go to Washington, I go to the Vietnam Memorial, and there will be hundreds of people there doing what? They're reading the stone. Now, in old Israel, God didn't, uh, didn't erect a stone that just had a series of people that had died. God wrote down his living word. It wasn't just a war memorial, but it was a life-giving, sacred revelation of himself. And I can imagine, you see, for down through the centuries, the Israelite daddies and moms could bring their children to Shechem. And they could go up on Mount Ebal, and what would they do? They could read the law. And I'm sure in old Israel, those that were faithful to the Lord, that was a real moving ceremony. Now, what's the equivalent of that? What's the equivalent of writing on the stones for us today? Like, how many of you in the United States of America, to read the book of Deuteronomy, we need to take a journey to Washington, D.C., we need to climb up and through the Arlington Cemetery, up into Robert E. Lee's old home, and there's three gigantic stones that have written on it. Is that where we have to go today? How many of you have ever made a trip to Washington to read the book of Deuteronomy? Where do you have to go to read the book of Deuteronomy? Tell me. To the Bible. How many of you have Bibles sitting at home near your bed? You see, you don't have to take any trips to see sacred stones. 
You don't have to have elaborate ceremonies to be able to read God's sacred word. But I want to ask you a question. Between now and last Sunday, how many of us really read the sacred stone? You see, that's the kind of a commitment. We need to get really serious. Some of you say, Dave, my religious life is not working. My relationship with God is not working. I don't think this Jesus thing is working. I guarantee you, it will not work unless on a regular basis you're reading the sacred stones. Unless on a regular basis, and I fact, I think every single day you need to be in this book. I've often shared with you about one of the greatest examples that my dad laid down for me. One of the greatest examples that my dad has laid down for me was my dad every single day checked out the sacred writings. Every single morning when I got up and peeked into my dad's study, like I've often told you, my dad was kneeling before a great big leather red chair. And he had a red pen, and he'd have his Schofield Bible up in front of him, and he was marking all over that Bible. And then he had all these little pieces of paper that were just all filling that Bible. That was his prayer list. Every single day, he's opening the day in that book. I want to challenge you. Maybe you need to make a recommitment. Just like I probably caught some of you when I said, have you ever read the Declaration of Independence? Most of us never have. Most of us have never read the Constitution. Most believers have never really read the Bible. Most believers don't have very, they don't have a clear idea about what God has revealed. And I have all kinds of people say, well, I can't understand it. Well, you certainly can't understand it if you don't read it. There's a good chance if you start out reading it, even if you don't understand it, sooner or later you'll understand something. I guarantee you. And one of the commitments that we need to make is like, instead of having to go to a mountain like Mount Ebal, all we need to do is open up the page of the Bible. I'd like some of you to say, Dave, I'm going to vow that. I'm going to make a vow that I'm going to commit myself to reading the blessings of God's revelation to me. And I'm going to do it on a consistent basis. You say, well, Dave, I've, I've made those commitments before, but it always falls down by the wayside. Why do you think that is? You see, because it's so important. It's so vital. It's so strategic. That's why we have such difficulty doing it. It's not just a little thing. It's really hard to read over these promises. But there's not only reading the law. There's also an altar. And as I read those verses to you, what struck you about God's instructions to Moses about the altar? Some of you that are skilled artisans and skilled craftsmen, what bothered you about what God said about the altar? Look down at Deuteronomy 27. What were God's instructions about this altar and what bothers you about it? There's no iron tools. What's the big deal about iron tools? That's a good question. I want you to say, let's think about it together. What happens at an altar? Under the Old Testament, what happens at an altar? They sacrifice, right? What are sacrifices for under the Old Testament law, Alan? Why is the blood of the animal shed? To take the place. In other words, it's like a substitute. And God said that that symbol of the animal being slain would be a covering for sin. And it would remind us about the curse of sin and then the blood of this innocent animal that was shed would remind us of the fact that God had covered our sin. Now, did we earn that forgiveness? Did we earn that covering? Now, what does the animal sacrifice at the altar that opens up fellowship with God? You see, Moses talks about two sacrifices. One is a total burnt offering that's totally consumed. The other is a fellowship offering that is, that is only partly consumed. It's cooked 
and then you eat a big meal rejoicing in intimate fellowship because of the burnt offering that's covered your sin, and now you can get close to God. Under the new covenant, under the new covenant, we don't sacrifice sheep. Why did not, in the course of our service today, why didn't we sacrifice such a lamb? Why didn't we have, you know, some of you in ag bring in one of your little lambs and why didn't we slit its throat and collect the blood and anoint an altar here today? Why didn't we do that? Under the Old Testament, that was really common practice in a worship service. That's what they did. Why didn't we do it? Because the ultimate lamb has already been shed. Do you see the difference in that? But I want you to see how consistent God as an artist is. He said, I don't want you to use the iron chisel because human beings have a tendency to think that they can do something to get close to God. You see, they think they can create a beautiful monument religiously. They think they can build a beautiful building. They think they can create great artwork. And they think that by doing that, they can get close to God. It's a very powerful thing in human existence. The idea that you build a religious place in fact, deep in a lot of your hearts, some of you say, Dave, I can hardly wait for the day when we can build a holy place. This gymnasium drives me nuts. I mean, there's basketball courts here. I mean, I want a place that has a beautiful, beautiful aesthetic setting. And I want to have a place where I can come and where I can have kneeling benches where it's nice and soft underneath, where I can get close to God. And I want to be able to have beautiful windows that the sun can come through. And I'm going to get that real feeling of, of intimate holiness and, and closeness with God. You see, you might not think that's a very powerful thing in you, but it is. Religions use that to control people. And millions of dollars is spent to be able to get those special holy places. You know what God made Israel do? God made Israel go out, and all they could do is look around the field, collect a stone. Little kids could do it. Kids always like to collect stone. Use their pockets. So you go over here, you pick a stone, you get 12 pretty good-sized ones, plop them down. That's all God let them do. They couldn't touch it with an artisan tool. No marvelous Michelangelo was able to sculpture that altar. You know why? Because as soon as that happens, man says, we've done it, God. Here we are. And so God made his Old Testament altar, that first altar that they built in the promised land there at Shechem. He said, I want you to make an altar. Don't your hands touch it with, a, with an artisan's tool. Because I'm the only one. It's a total free gift for you to be forgiven of your sins. No human effort. And that's the hardest thing for any of you to believe and for me to believe. It's the hardest thing to believe that God says you can't put your hand on it. You've got to open your hands and just let me forgive you. You've got to open your hands and just let me give you a blessing. You've got to open your hands and let me make you my people. You've got to open your hands and you need to just let me get close to you, but you can't earn it. And that's the hardest thing for us to believe. And what I want you to see is how God brings together the symbolism of the Old Testament to drive home the theology of the New Testament. That it's for by grace are you saved... By faith, and that none of yourselves, it is a gift. That's why the altar couldn't be touched. Why no artisan could monkey with those stones. God was driving home, I do this freely. I'm the God of creation, and you cannot earn my favor. There's nothing wrong with doing beautiful things for God. Remember that the, um, when Mary poured the ointment on the Lord's feet, there are some beautiful things. We're not saying that we won't ever have a place that's a little bit different than a gymnasium, but I want every one of you to remember, you don't get close to God because of a building. 
You get close to God because of his blood. You get close to God because of Jesus Christ. And I want every one of you from the smallest child to the oldest adult, that's the remembrance. That's the powerful message that I want you to pass on through the generations. I want you to remember that. You can't touch the altar. You've got to just receive what happened on that altar of Calvary and just rejoice in what God has done for you. But you know, when you receive the altar, when you receive that relationship with Jesus Christ, it comes totally free. But when you believe it, your life has changed. And that's why you'll notice under the Old Testament law, they did not obey God's commands because they wanted to be the people of God. You see, a whole lot of people think that you get to be the people of God by living up to a moral standard. Is that so? No. But then there's a lot of other people that think, well, there isn't any moral standard. You can live any way you want to. I've got a friend of mine that was teaching a doctrine that said, you know, we're all saved by grace. You know, we're all just saved freely. And, and you can forget all about morality. You can forget all about ethics because it's all the gift of God. That person forgot to read both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant carefully. You see, becoming a member of the family of God is totally free. But when you become the people of God, when you become one of God's chosen ones, it changes your life. And obedience follows the relationship. It doesn't precede the relationship. But the Spirit of God under the New Covenant comes into our life and He changes us. Under the Old Covenant, God made the children of Israel His people by grace, free. They were delivered from Egypt as a gift. They didn't earn it. They didn't, they didn't deserve it. In fact, they deserved just the opposite. But then they came to Mount Sinai and God said, now that you will become my people, this is how my people live. And under the new covenant, I think it's very important for us to remember that. As you go out into an unbelieving world, your unbelieving friends should be able to look at your life and your life should be marked people of God. God's man, God's woman, God's son, God's daughter, God's child. They should be able to know by looking at your life, Jesus has made a difference. And under the Old Testament law, that was, that was revealed and that was produced in the people by declaring to them the great ethical principles of the Holy Word of God. And that's what's happening in this next part of the chapter. If you look at verse 9, it says, Then Moses and the priests who are the Levites and to all the Israelites, he said, I want you to be silent, O Israel. And I want you to listen. You have now become, that's what I've just been talking about, you have now become the people of the Lord your God. Now look at verse 10. Now that you become the people of the Lord your God, what's the next word, everybody? Now that you become the people of God, what's the next word? I want you to tell me it again. Now that you become the people of God, and that's where American believers, we are not obeying. And that's why the Spirit of God wants to drive home the ethics that the new life, the morality of what the new life of Jesus Christ bring to the life. I want you to notice there was a key word. Can anyone look back over those verses? What is a very key word in learning to obey? You have to first to obey. You first of all have to, got to listen. You know, that's one of the, how about you? That is one of the hardest things in my life to do. Do you know what you're doing right now? A lot of you think that what you're doing right now is easy. Do you know that what you're doing right now is a lot harder than what I have to do? I mean, I can't let my mind wander. I can't just, you know, be thinking about what Mary made, is making for lunch, if there's anything. 
Because if I do that, suddenly I switch from talking to you about the Ten Commandments, talking to you about Deuteronomy 27, suddenly I'm talking to you about roast beef or, or, or dinner over at Nino's or something like that. I can be talking about a million and one things. You're going to know it right away. So it's really hard for me as a preacher to fall asleep and be wandering while I'm talking to you. Now, a lot of preachers, and sometimes I sound like I really did fall asleep, but it's a lot harder. It happens, but it's a lot harder. But if I were to ask you, how many of you, your mind is kind of bopped around? You know, you're kind of all over creation. And a whole lot of you would have to say, that's right. You know why? Because it's hard to listen. One of the hardest disciplines in life is to listen. That's why almost every wife says to her husband about 40 times a day, listen to me. She said it to her husband. She said it to her kids. Why? Because it's hard to listen. If you want to understand the law of God, it begins, you've got to listen. You've got to quiet your heart, and you've got to listen carefully to what he has to say. The first step to understanding is to listen. In fact, a lot of understanding in God's word comes, and this is where a lot of understanding of everybody that you talk to comes. You listen. And in a lot of ways, as you're listening, understanding kind of dawns on you. If you listen carefully and you stay engaged with what someone's telling you, it kind of comes through, I understand. In fact, people can't even can't explain how understanding really happens. It's one of the most complicated processes. The Germans have dedicated volumes to understanding how do I understand. And we still don't understand how we understand. But I know one thing, you've got to listen. You'll never understand anybody if you don't listen. God's word is like that. If you want to understand God's word, you've got to listen to it. You've got to have that, that place where you come repeatedly. And you're just going to be playing your relationship. You're just going to be just acting out of just a very insignificant role in your walk with God until you set up some definite times where you're going to open up this book. You don't have to go to big stones, big white white stones. You've got it right here. Every one of you have a copy of it. You've got to make a commitment. I'm going to open it up. And then you've got to make a commitment that you're going to listen. You're going to listen to God as he talks in that book. Now, what are some of the things that he's going to talk to you about? The rest of the chapter is like a summary of some of the things that God talked to ancient Israel about. And this was done at this very moving ceremony. The priest would read a verse, and one side would say, Amen. They would say, if we obey God's law, we're going to be blessed. And they'd say, Amen. Those on Mount Gerizim, which is a treed, today it's a treed mountain, and Ebal is kind of a bald mountain, so it really fits very, very artistically. Then the other side on Mount Ebal would, would say amen for the cursing. And so the Levite would begin, a very dramatic setting. The Levite would begin in verse 14. The Levite shall recite to the people of Israel in a loud voice. So you can hear this. Hundreds of Levites shouting out, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman's hand and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say... Little weak. Here's the next one. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father and his mother. Then all the people shall say, and we could turn it around. Blessed is the man who honors his father and his mother and who obeys the fifth commandment. And all the people said, Amen. It says, Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. Then all the people shall say, Blessed is the man who does not lead the blind astray. Or cursed is the man who does lead the blind astray. Then all the people shall say, Cursed is the man who withholds justice from an alien, a fatherless person, an orphan, or a widow, then all the people shall say. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, or he dishonors his father's bed, then all the people shall say. 
You got the feeling of this? It was dramatic. It was moving. God is summarizing what we've taken more than a year to cover. What Moses is having the people do is to go back and review the law of Deuteronomy. He starts out with the most important laws of all. Number one and number two. Number one, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Number two, don't make any representation of the living God out of physical substance. Anything created. Why not? Because the book of Exodus explained that our Lord God in heaven is spirit. And those that worship him according to John chapter 4 must worship him in spirit and in truth. What a moving experience it must have been to gather with thousands of your countrymen on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and hear the thundering blessing and cursing rumble forth from the two mountains as people recited the antiphony. I pray God has used our discussion today of the importance of reading God's revelation to challenge you to have your own alone time with God daily. This is one of the most serious areas of attack against the American believer today. We cannot expect to have intimacy with God when we don't schedule any personal time with Him. We need to have both private and public times when we quiet our hearts to hear God's voice and where we humble ourselves to obey His voice.